1: And merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of
0: Sports Yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. Feel like taking
1: a few ground balls? Look, I tried to tell you you're on a space station in the 24th century. The only ball field around is a holographic simulation. It's not real and neither are you. See, I don't get it. I am here with you, aren't I? Right now you are, but in a minute, who knows? I hope when we get this thing figured out, you'll... Disappear for good? I hope so.
0: Oh, you do, huh? Well, so let's just say for a moment I don't. So what am I supposed to do, huh? You got room on your team for a switch-hitting third baseman with good power?
1: I wish I had more time for this. Well, that was
0: baseball's epitaph, wasn't it? Nobody seemed to have time for us anymore. You know, I could have played five more years if they hadn't killed the game. You were the best that ever played. I know I've played with them all. I've got work to do. Hey, Ben. It really meant a lot to me. How much you cared. That day we won the World Series.
1: There were only 300 people in the stands. 301 in my version. I heard you cheering. Meant a lot to me. I just thought you should know, you know, in case I do finally disappear.
0: Consider the resume of one Harmon Buck, book After winning a California State High School Championship with his Plata del Rey Vikings, the 18-year-old switch hitter signed with the London Kings. As a rookie in 2015, he was named the starting shortstop on what was often acknowledged as the greatest major league team of all time in what was certainly one of the most impressive rookie seasons ever, Bukai hit over 20 home runs from both the left and the right side of the plate for the first of three consecutive years. In 2020, he passed the 44-game hitting streaks of Wee Willie Keeler and Pete Rose, but fell six games short of Joe DiMaggio's hallowed 56-game hitting streak record. In 2025, Bukai hit... In 54 consecutive games, but again fell short of DiMaggio's record until finally breaking the mark in 2026 with a little grounder that just barely got past gold glove shortstop Eddie Newsom in the ninth inning of a 57th straight game. He'd go on to hit 61 consecutive games, thus compiling three of the four longest hitting streaks in American professional baseball history. His batting average was 390 in both seasons, thus making him the first batter to hit 390 or better in consecutive seasons since Rogers Hornsby had done so 101 and 102 years before. And in 2042, back with the Kings for his 28th season in Major League Baseball, Buck Bokai hit the World Series-winning home run over who else but the New York Yankees in the 11th inning of Game 7. It was to be the last professional baseball game ever played on Earth. Unfortunately for Buck... He's fictional, a footnote within the universe of the Star Trek TV movie franchise, a character first envisioned 32 years ago as a product of the future, but now a contemporary of ours. As we look to wind up Volume 1 of the Truly the Goats podcast, I've been thinking a lot about Buck Bokai, as well as Captain Benjamin Sisko, ardent fan of a sport dead for two centuries in the public consciousness. Because... Over seven episodes of Truly the Goats, which took us to ancient Rome, 18th century Japan, and all over the early 20th century U.S., some truths have become clear. Sports have been played for millennia in any culture with citizens who enjoy any amount of leisure time or holidays. But highly organized, professional-level sports, especially team sports, are the exceptions in human history. And I can't help wondering if, after a century-long golden age of world sports, that we're now heading into the wrong side of history. Hey, it's 2020, can you blame me? My name is Oz Davis, and this is Truly the Goats, sports history as told through its superstars. On August 17th, on what would have been the exact midpoint of the 2020 Canadian Football League season, the news broke. It appears COVID-19 has sacked the 2020 Canadian Football League season after officials
1: announced Monday that due to financial restraints, there won't be football for the remainder of the year. The truth is, the CFL does not have enough money to make the Hub City six-game season model work, says Randy Ambrosie, commissioner of the CFL. He says it's why the league was seeking a $30 million interest-free loan from the federal government, and once it got denied, the football season was over before it got started. Ambrosie says other sports leagues like the NBA, NHL, and NFL that have been able to get back to play during the pandemic have done so because they have more money than the Canadian Football League does.
0: On the face of it, cancellation of the CFL season due to COVID-19 doesn't seem like such a big deal. After all, this is 2020. Since the pandemic hit, American college football and most other college sports have been canceled, postponed, shrunk. Canada's National Lacrosse League ended its season without playoffs, as did the American Hockey League. All levels of professional baseball, except the Major League, have been canceled, and the MLB has reduced its season by over 60% while introducing several new rules to shorten games. Plus, both the UEFA European Football Championship and the Olympic Games have been pushed back to 2021. But while organizations like FIFA and the NBA may be too big internationally to fail, the CFL is certainly not. Unlike the NFL, its counterpart south of the border, the CFL depends on ticket sales as the primary part of its revenue. Additionally, revenue sharing has helped to cover losses incurred by teams in the country's three biggest markets, Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver, for the past three decades, but the deficit is becoming burdensome. Apparently, sports fans in Canada's bigger cities have gotten the same ideas have their American counterparts, namely, why attend a game. Why drive out to the stadium, possibly outside the city, as in Vancouver, pay for parking, pay for any assorted expenses, and drive home through traffic at 11 p.m. or so at night? Why not stay home, watch your big screen TV, and drink the beer of your choice from just a few feet away in the refrigerator? When Commissioner Randy Ambrosi appealed to a parliamentary subcommittee seeking financial assistance, he requested a whopping $150 million, some of which would be used to cover extant losses. And that amount would be needed if the CFL were to play an abbreviated nine or even six game season in 2020. Ambrosi darkly hinted that the kinds of losses the league's franchises expected to see in 2020, quote, could have an effect on the future of this league, unquote. Those not in the know about Canadian football may not realize the impact of that statement. The CFL has a history that goes back to the period when rugby and American football were not yet distinguishable. The CFL's season ending award, the Grey Cup, has been awarded since 1909, just six years after American baseball's first World Series was held. The Toronto Argonauts first began playing in 1873 and have never moved their home location, making this the longest such continuously running club in all of North American sports. For reference, Canada itself became an independent nation in 1867. All this history ends if the CFL ends. And what's more, it might take down Canadian football with it. If the CFL goes down, Canadian football is on the road to extinction, or at least endangerment as well. If the CFL goes out, Canadian football is on the road to extinction, or at least endangerment. Going into the 2020 NFL season, some 17 Canadian citizens were playing in the NFL. And between 2009 and 2019, just two players were drafted into the NFL out of Canadian colleges. Now, this is not to say that an entire sport necessarily disappears from the cultural landscape simply because the professional version of the game no longer exists. But football, with its serious degree of specialization among players, the required equipment, the needed playing space, combine to make it the most high maintenance of all modern era sports. And this, in turn, makes the entire sport the least sustainable of the modern era sports. Did I say American football is too big to fail? Perhaps the NFL need not be overly concerned with ticket sales per se, as long as those TV revenues stay up. Amid a television landscape where Game of Thrones was considered an overwhelming massive success for drawing 19.2 million viewers for the series finale, Monday Night Football in his 50th season drew an average of 12.57 million per week. About 32 million watched the average NFL playoff game, and the Super Bowl still brings in 100 or so million viewers in the U.S. alone. Networks pay a combined $3.05 billion per year to broadcast these games, and companies spend upward of $5.1 billion per year for the privilege of advertising during the broadcasts. Ticket sales, meanwhile, netted only about $1.7 billion in total, or an average of $53.2 million per team. The salary cap is $188.2 million per team. So, who needs live audiences? On top of this lucrative situation... The NFL has weathered its share of PR troubles in recent years, including the Colin Kaepernick kneel-down controversy, several cheating scandals, some not even including the New England Patriots, and a number of violent off-field incidents perpetrated by its players. But in the socially and economically volatile time, the gatekeepers of the sport would be ill-advised to ignore history, because football was once literally made illegal by the President of the United States. The first proper organized college football game, meaning a game of opposing teams of 11 players in which a ball is carried by hand and advanced to a goal line, was held in June 1875 between Tulsa and Harvard. Tulsa won the game by one touchdown, two words, to none. The game got little report on sports pages, otherwise filled with baseball scores and horse racing results, but on college campuses, this new brand of football quickly became a craze of epic proportions. By the turn of the century, every college from Dartmouth to Baylor to Berkeley field football teams. The Ivy League and big schools often filled their schedules with much smaller schools in the nearby region due to the slow speed of travel. Teams like Harvard earned an incredible reputation for seasons like 1890, in which the Crimson defeated opponents by a combined score of 555 to 12 in 11 games, nine of them shutouts. But college football's explosive growth very nearly led to its own destruction. On college campuses, games were first organized by student groups, The players themselves, and later their coaches, continued to bear responsibility for all organization of college football, including scheduling formation of regional conferences and rule changes. It was this last factor that was the biggest problem. These were the days before helmets or pads, before the forward pass truly existed, and essentially every play from scrimmage was a plunge or an end around. The early rules of college football were mostly of a technical sort, with almost no penalties assessed for rough play. Punching and kicking players was not explicitly disallowed, and players were left to play as gentlemen, who wouldn't play that way. The universities were to uphold the ideas of Western civilization, going back to the ancient Greeks, and one of these, Dicta, stated that sports is a substitute for war. Well, football was the best substitute there was. Students and coaches resisted any rule changes that might make the game less violent, or, as they saw it, less exciting. And they weren't the only ones who saw things thusly. Then-New York State Governor Theodore Roosevelt wrote in a column entitled What We Can Expect of the American Boy, which appeared in the youth magazine St. Nicholas in 1900. In life, as in a football game, the principle to follow is, hit the line hard, don't foul and don't shirk, but hit the line hard. Three years later, having become President of the United States, he told a college audience in New York that, I believe in rough games and in rough, manly sports. I do not feel any particular sympathy for the person who gets battered about a good deal, so long as it is not fatal. When Roosevelt gave that speech in 1903, an increasingly vocal number of citizens may have found them the words of an apologist for an overly violent preoccupation that was becoming virulently popular among those not enrolled in college and was becoming increasingly deadly. In 1903, the number of deaths directly attributable to football numbered six. The following year, that number shot up to 18. And in 1905, at least 20 Americans between the ages of 13 and 27, including one 18-year-old girl, lost their lives to football injuries. In October of that year, 1905, during Harvard's football preseason, an injury occurred that shook President Roosevelt out of his complacency. In his first week practicing with the Harvard freshman team, Teddy Jr. indeed got battered about a good deal, as his coach explained to the president, he was too small and too slow. Jr. was ultimately cut over the eye while tackling a fellow player and was compelled to withdraw from the campus. In the same scrimmage, a player by the name of Ralph Bradley fractured his skull. A brief on the Quad City Times Sports page reported that. Bradley essayed to tackle a man protected by interference and either was kicked in the head or trampled on. There's no telling what President Roosevelt's reaction to poor Ralph Bradley's injury was, but he immediately brought powers to bear in defending his oldest son. That autumn, Roosevelt met personally with officials from Columbia, Yale, and others to discuss reforms to the game, and twice invited Yale coaches and other representatives to the White House. He even went so far as to threaten an executive order that would make football illegal. By the end of the 1905 college football season, 23 schools had either switched from football to rugby or had banned all forms of gridiron football altogether, among them University of Arizona, ASU, Baylor, Boston College, cal cincinnati columbia dartmouth duke georgetown northwestern temple and wake forest on december 8th new york university chancellor henry mccracken hosted a meeting with representatives of 13 eastern colleges to discuss the problems of the game incredibly enough the first item put to a vote was ought the present game of football be abolished the vote was eight to five against three votes saved football, and basic innovations like the hiring of professional head coaches and a national governing body, plus rule changes made possible by the development of the forward pass were implemented. Today, football at college and professional levels is a multi-billion dollar industry, and such a meeting as that which happened in December 1905 would clearly be impossible. And despite recent presidents' provocativity for the executive order, such an act also seems improbable to happen in the 2020s. Then again, the banning of football probably seemed impossible in the 1900s. After the new rules and organization were introduced for the 1906 season, the headlines and stories of fatalities and traumatic injuries soon faded from America's newspapers completely, though the dangers of football never truly did. No one who pays the least amount of attention to sports needs another recounting of the concussion-slash-CTE issues associated with gridiron football. Even beyond the long-term effects of brain trauma, football remains comparatively deadly between 1990 and 2010 some 243 football related fatalities were reported to the national center for catastrophic sports injury research an average of just over 12 per year that time a college player was nearly three times as likely to be killed while playing football than a high school player and most deaths were due to practice activities from 2013 to 2015 The numbers had increased to 14 fatalities per year, but perhaps owing to certain reforms in college football in the late aughts and early teens, fatalities of high school players had become two and a half times more common than of college players. And 115 years after the question of banning football was put forward at that New York meeting, average Americans are beginning to take such health risks seriously. Studies by the National Federation of High School Associations show that participation in high school football is down nearly 10% from 2009 to 2019, and it's anyone's guess as to how school closures due to the pandemic will affect those numbers for 2021. This decline in quantity of participants at the high school level implies an eventual lessening of quality in the overall talent pool. The quality of play will eventually trickle up to the highest football on TV is certainly remain popular for some time yet even if it is played in front of empty mega stadiums for a while The latest TV contract runs through Super Bowl 57 in 2023 and at this moment as a completely casual observer I'd have to guess that 3 billion plus figure to come down maybe significantly huge TV deal or not a shrinking talent pool does not bode well for the future of football. Professional football also suffers one major drawback that virtually any modern ballgame does not. It is monocultural. Outside the United States and Canada, gridiron football is played by small groups of local devotees and or expatriated Americans. In Europe, no sporting club hosts an American football team. And since this is the way European youth participate in sport, they are far more likely to train at dozens of other sports before even considering American football. If American and Canadian high schools no longer get enough players, if college end programs for lack of talent funds, if the CFL and the NFL go down, they will have, in the words of Buck Bokai, killed the game. On the morning of the day of the last World Series game ever played, Buck Bokai takes batting practice and knows it's all wrong. Yankee Stadium was never meant to be this empty. Empty buildings stand outside the outfield walls, flanked against a brightening sky that was once obscured by video screens and hollow play. It's going to be another hot October day, he thinks as he swings. Ha! Got that one by you, his manager taunts. Guess the old cutter's still got life in her yet. Sure does, Skip, Buck agrees, even though he knows Bert Zolman wrecked his arm in the minor leagues about 50 years ago. And not one of his batting practice pitches has curved or broken in all the time, Buck's not, At least we'll get to use that one today, he says. Winds and throws again. Crack goes the sound of bat on ball again. The sound clapping off the right field while the ball flies over. And Buck knows it's wrong to be hearing the echoes. This is Yankee Stadium. There should be kids shagging balls for us to autograph. The guys should be out here wanting to win more badly than anything, wishing for the time to speed up and get to that first pitch. There should be a camera crew uploading the pregame for Snet streaming. There should be someone out here watching this, enjoying this. Baseball is the greatest game, the most beautiful game ever. But it's nothing without the crowd. Maybe what they say is true, thinks Buck Bokai. No one has time for baseball anymore. Bert throws a pitch that hits the ground halfway to the plate, feebly bounces off the dirt infield, and dies in a rut just outside the batter's box. Buck pockets the ball while mentally noting to get another so he can collect the autographs of the Yankees and Kings players. The last Yankees and Kings players. He leaves the bat behind and heads for the mound. The old manager shows every day of his life in baseball as he struggles to catch his breath, wincing with the difficulty of it. Bert's entire career in the game, from struggling with recurring injuries in low-level minor leagues to fighting his way up through the coaching ranks, had been a virtual testament to overachieve him. Naturally, he'd done the same on baseball's last day. Why don't you take it easy, Skip, Buck says. Go back to the clubhouse. I'll get the ones in the outfield. He picks up the basket and heads for the too-tall grass. But Buck, you only hit from one side. Ah, no big deal, says Buck with a smile. Garcia's going today. He's a righty. And as Buck gathers baseballs, he knows it shouldn't be like this. There should be a next year. As a sports hero, as a baseball superstar, as a GOAT, Buck Bocai for his seems like an anomaly in terms of timing. And I'm not talking about the sort of temporal anomalies so frequently dealt with on Star Trek. But most of the stories that we've done on Truly the Goats feature athletes playing while the sport itself is in the prime of its existence. Flama the Gladiator fought at the height of obsession for the arena combat games in Rome. Likewise, Ryden, the sumo wrestler, benefited from his national government's promotion of sumo as a cultural part in a patriotic cultural awakening. Michael Jordan debuted in the NBA after it achieved a new level of popularity thanks to the likes of Magic Johnson and Larry Bird, on the way to becoming the world's second most popular sport. John Donaldson's baseball career spanned from the earliest days of segregated baseball leagues to the formation of the Negro National League and nearly through to Jackie Robinson's debut with the Montreal Royals. Others achieved their GOAT status as pioneers. Jim Thorpe became the NFL's first superstar when the league brought his regionally dominant Canton Bulldogs into the new association. Pop Warner, his coach at Carlisle, innovated football itself, as well as methods of recruiting and training new talent. Some goats benefited in both ways. Playing in what was a golden age for women's sports in America, Babe Didrikson Zaharias first gained national notoriety in AAU basketball and track and field, then enjoyed international reality by starring in the first Olympics, which had women's sports and ultimately created the LPGA just so she'd have competitions in which to play golf professionally. And Angelo Mosca, greatest heel of all time, may have taken up professional wrestling just slightly too early to benefit from the insane explosion of popularity of the then-WWF in the 1980s, but did get to play in the Canadian Football League at a time when player pay, and therefore the football itself, was highly competitive. Then there's Buck Bokai, baseball's last goat who claims he could have played until he was 49 years old, but whose career ended prematurely when they killed the game. Buck may be anomalous compared to goats of the past, but he could very well be the model for the future. After all, sports and sporting events have died out before. Think of the Gladiator Games, Chariot Racing, the original Greek Olympics, jousting, and the Mesoamerican ball game, All but the last disappeared not by war or sudden universal disinterest, but rather by internal realities of finance and infrastructure. Our own time is unique in its incredible range of highly organized, highly structured sports available for the common person to spectate or participate in. But neither have organized sports ever been so dependent on such massive amounts of money and resources for their survival. Can you imagine one of the major American sports dying by, say, 2042, the final year of baseball in the Star Trek universe? I'll tell you who has imagined it, George R.R. R. Martin, famed creator-slash-writer of the Game of Thrones franchise. In 1975, Martin wrote a story entitled The Last Super Bowl. I've been thinking about this story a lot in 2020. The Last Super Bowl envisions the final game in the history of the NFL, namely Super Bowl 50, featuring the Green Bay Packers against the Hoboken Jets in... Hoboken, New Jersey. A bit over 850 are in attendance for the final game, including a Boy Scout troop and a dozen sports writers watching this last game despite the steady, drizzling rain. The Packers were the favorites, and that was as it should be. It was somehow right and appropriate and just that the Packers should be in the final game. They were still the Green Bay Packers after all, the same now at the end as in the dim beginning so many years ago. The teams of the great cities had come and gone, but the Packers stayed on. Eternal, unchanging. They had a perfect record going into the championship and a defense the likes of which football had never seen, or at least so the sports writers wrote, but claims like that had to be taken with several grains of salt. Sports writers were a dying breed, and they exaggerated a lot to stave off extinction. The underdogs in the last lonely showdown were the Hoboken Jets, formerly the Jersey City Jets. The sports writers, in their fading wisdom, had decreed that the Jets would lose by two touchdowns. Not that Hoboken had a bad team. They were pretty good, actually. They'd won their conference going away, but then it was a weak conference, and the Jets' defense was a little sloppy. They didn't have a great offense either. What they did have was Keith Lancer. Lancer, so said the sports writers, was the greatest quarterback to ever throw a football. Better than Namath, Unitas, Graham, Ball, any of them. A golden arm, great range, fantastic accuracy. He was a scrambler too, and a brilliant field general. I won't divulge any spoilers about the titular game's outcome. And I won't judge Martin's guesswork. After all, too often we tend to judge science fiction writers as though they were playing at Nostradamus when what they're actually doing is trying to tell the best story possible. Seriously, who could have guessed the status of the Boy Scouts in 2016? However, one aspect of Martin's vision bears scrutiny. Namely, his take on what precipitates the fall of the NFL and essentially American football altogether. now this all-time heavyweight champion fight ready to go there is the bell The Superfight was a 1970 Rocky film Marciano. production featuring Muhammad Ali and Rocky Marciano in a match between the only two undefeated heavyweight champions at that time it was the first true attempt to visually simulate a contest of goats the film's producer, Murray Warner, had been an innovator in his use of computers to determine results in fictional sporting events. Three years earlier, he produced a series of shows for radio featuring a tournament of all-time great heavyweights. For Martin's football universe of the last Super Bowl, the Superfight was the beginning of the end for NFL football and other major sports leagues in the mass media. In the filming of the superfight, the real-life Ali and Marciano were available to shoot several hours. Clearly, these sorts of human resources would not be available to simulate, say, a game between the 1927 Yankees and the 1966 Dodgers. So, figured Martin, computers would simulate the entire thing, creating a result that visually could not be discerned from the real thing, though with the capability to feature any player or team from the past in any sport as long as data was available. Matches of all-time greats were run against real-life games by rival networks, and soon the simulations were outdoing the real thing. Of course they did. Martin reasoned. The fans were too far removed from the stadium to grasp the point. They were a generation of sports fans that had never seen a football game except over television. And over television, the computer games were just as dramatic and unpredictable and exciting as anything the NFL could offer. Now, Martin hardly stood alone in forecasting the literally awesome powers the computer would someday have, particularly among science fiction writers. But truly, the GOATs must give props for this application of futuristic computer technology to sports simulations. I mean, Pong had only been invented three years before the last Super Bowl was published. Today's computer technology is, of course, well capable of the millions upon millions of calculations required to calculate the results of all-time matchups, as well as pixel-perfect detail to represent those fictional games visually accurately. In taking a look at the last Super Bowl for Vice.com in 2016, writer Nihar Patel wrote that, In the 40 years since writing it, Martin's bleak vision for football has in many ways come true, but in a surreal twist, has had the opposite impact on the game. Later in that piece, Patel writes, What Martin got right in the story was the role technology would ultimately play in supplanting the in-person viewing experience. While fans obviously don't pack stadiums to watch holo show simulations, we do draft fantasy players, build our own super teams, and enter virtual tournaments with massive amounts of prize money. We play Madden with virtual recreations of players and watch esports tournaments on ESPN, streamed on Twitch, or in actual stadiums like in South Korea. But there are several issues with the notions of simulations taking over for an actual sport. Firstly, as fantastic looking and responsive as games like NBA 2K, FIFA Football, and the market-driving Madden football games are, they've still got quite a way to go before passing through the uncanny valley and becoming indistinguishable from reality, if in fact that's even desirable. Second, The high-level League-branded games are usually not built with historical simulation in mind. Sure, every once in a while, a big-name basketball game will allow players to unlock you know, Larry Bird or Charles Barkley or whatever. But in general, sports games are all about reinforcing the brand names of teams and players with multi-million dollar contracts negotiated with player unions behind The NFL, for example, doesn't want you to play with the 2007 New England Patriots. They want you to play with the current edition of the New England Patriots. Third, the Maddens and NBA 2Ks of the world are actually not very good simulators. Why? Because they're not meant for sim. They're meant for players to master badass moves on the controls and trash talk their opponent after burning them with the same play six times in a row. If playing to win, Madden is often best played unrealistically in real-world football terms. Those games that seek to reproduce more realistic results, like out-of-the-park baseball or draft-day football, are low on graphics. Finally, as Patel contends, esports are getting more popular. They've been popular in Japan and Korea since the 1990s, and might even eclipse some major sports for their broadcasting supremacy. But the biggest esports competition in North America and elsewhere are rarely played with sports games. And when esports tournaments or leagues are played with a sports title, these are typically promotions of the league itself. During the COVID epidemic, we've gotten a couple examples of actual televised events of sim sports games. NASCAR and the NBA produced such shows and drew audiences of upward of 1 million live viewers on television alone. But these featured the actual athletes themselves competing. In short, the massive sports simulation game industry is completely dependent upon the sports events happening now. With fantasy sports, online sports betting, and the 365-day-a-year activity of most big leagues have resulted in the dominance of immediacy and importance to the sports fan. In this market, sports history has increasingly little place, and memory is reduced to the result of the last World Cup, World Series, Super Bowl, Simulations can never replace sports, for simulations without sports would have no context. And some sports may be lie the seeds of their own socioeconomic destruction without the need for outside competition from a whole new form of entertainment. For example, there's baseball. Buck Bokai puts baseball's extinction in 2042 down to, Nobody seemed to have time for us anymore. But I'm not convinced this is a sufficient explanation. Maybe we'll have much less leisure time in the 30s and 40s, but in 2020, people have enough time to binge watch TV series longer than even a Red sox Yankees game in August. There's time enough to devote an entire Saturday or Sunday to football. Fewer and fewer people watch Major League Baseball. In the late 80s and early 90s, over 30 million people watch the average World Series game, no matter the teams or the general public's expected outcome. In 1991, 50.3 million, or one out of every five Americans, watched Game 7 of the Minnesota-Atlanta World Series. In 2019, just over 23 million, about 1 in 14 Americans, watched Game 7 of Washington-Houston. And in August of 2020, ESPN executives exalted in a rise in viewership for its nationally telecast MLB games to 1.2 million per game. Come on, guys. The NASCAR dudes driving simulators did almost as well as that. Now, this is a small sample size to be sure, but the numbers are just another example of the undeniable overall graveyard spiral of a decrease in popularity and cultural cachet of baseball. This of decline may be seen among those who were once the backbone of Major League Baseball fandom. Interest in baseball as a spectator sport is down precipitously in non-MLB markets among casual fans and, most crucially, those 35 years old or younger. Jeffrey Dorfman, writing for Forbes.com in October 2013, considered the numbers from 1984 through 2013 and calculated that The simple linear trend for World Series viewership over this 30-year period is a loss of 775,000 viewers per year. At this rate, nobody will be watching the World Series by 2030. To give an update for those numbers, between 2013 and 2019, the linear trend was a loss of only 700,000 viewers per year. So at the current rate, nobody will be watching the World Series by 2039, Buck Bocai's era. And sure enough, participation in organized baseball leagues is seriously sliding. From 1999 through 2019, The linear decline in Little League registration is down 2.25% per year. The Sports and Fitness Industry Association has reported rises in participation among the general population from 13.4 million in 2013 to 15.9 million in 2018. But an asterisk should be applied to these enthusiastic numbers. Survey authors noted an increase of 2.3 million, nearly the entire six-year gain, among the most casual players i.e. those who play 12 or fewer times a year, and measured against the population, those six years saw a decline from 4% to just 3% of the overall U.S. population. Blame it on youth soccer, blame it on the internet, blame it on night games, blame it on whatever you like. The truth is that baseball is a product of another age, a casualty of evolving culture. The first organized game of baseball was played before the existence of cars, airplanes, and TV, before sports medicine, agents, and player unions. And all of those things that baseball fans loved about the games for 150 years, the long season, the languid pace, the day games in summer, the lore, the history, are increasingly incompatible with the 21st century American lifestyle. Not enough time. That is a sad epitaph. I've been thinking about the future of sports lately. One truth I've learned while doing Truth of the Goats is that in the 20th century, Sports came to occupy a much wider swathe of human life and discourse. Virtually every nation on earth today has a professional soccer association at very least. Most have pro basketball leagues, and others have pro leagues in hockey, baseball, cricket. By the end of the century, most of the world had access to top European soccer leagues, the NBA, NHL, Formula One races, tennis tours, and golf tournaments via TV and the nascent internet. The past is sports vahala. The future maybe decidedly less so. On some days, I think Major League Baseball will be gone by 2030, or certainly shrunk to minuscule size like the eight teams of Buck Kai's not-so-distant future world. Some days, I think a single shocking violent incident could decimate football fandom forever. In the time of coronavirus, the economic infrastructure of neither sports league looks particularly sustainable. Some days, I wonder if we should stop looking ahead to the next GOAT and start wondering if we're watching the last GOATs right now. Who is the real-life Buck Bokai? Mike Trout? Are there players in today's Major League Baseball whose primes will be stunted or denied altogether when the sport folds? Is Tom Brady destined to go down as the greatest quarterback, the greatest offensive player, the GOAT of American football for forever? Not because of his five Super Bowl wins are unassailable, but because his sport died not long after his retirement? On other days, I think, maybe the large sports associations can survive. Europeans' top soccer leagues, as well as the NBA, seem prived to go on for quite some time yet, albeit presumably with a smaller budget for operating costs. Why couldn't even a sports league like the NFL, the MLB, more demanding of resources, time, money, and energy, go on fueled by tradition and history alone? The answer to that may depend on how much we care about tradition and history. Maybe some sports leagues have six years left to play. Maybe they'll go on for 150 more. In 2020, who knows what the future may bring. I'd therefore like to make a proposition to fans of any sport or sports. Let's appreciate our games so central in our society. Soak in the high level of artistry and skill that modern technology affords. Let's stop rushing to affix that greatest of all time level on everything and everyone, and enjoy the mastery and the heroes of our games today, the Serena Williamses, the LeBron Jameses, the Hakuhos. Let's appreciate the history of our great sports, the context in which today's GOATs participate, and let's appreciate what we have while we can, before it all disappears. When he's honest with himself in his later years, Buck Bokai admits the final World Series game wasn't much of a game. Through nine innings plus the tenth, just three measly hits, little slaps of the ball into the outfield. It's not as though it's a pitcher's duel either. Neither Jackson nor Garcia, or any of the relievers for that matter, have thrown more than ten convincing strikes between them, including Jackson's vicious slider that had whipped Buck in the sixth inning. These men who have made innumerable fractions of a second swings reflexively on this day are afraid to take the bat off the shoulder. No one says anything, but they all know why. Despite the frustration and futility, however, the players had played with exaggerated exactitude and precision, dragging out the negative space between the action, as though collectively they could slow time by sheer force of will. Time to play the sport so notable for its lack of game clock. By the top of the 11th, the shadows were growing long, In another day, the Yankees' pitcher would have blamed the encroaching darkness for the walk he'd issued Finley, for the bounding grounder so badly misplayed to put two men on. Of course, on another day, the electric lights would snap on and daylight would have washed the field again. Buck Bokai approaches the batter's box. He's not foolish enough to be planning his last ever at-bat. Anything can happen in baseball, and a failed turn at-bat here would hardly be against the odds. If this thing continues, he figures, they might call it on account of darkness. Wouldn't that be a way for baseball to go out? His insides bristle with the feeling of fear? How can that be? Buck Bokai stops short of home plate, maybe an inch from the batter's box. He stares at the gray lines there on the ground and can't imagine it's ever been that long since the lines were white. Or is it just the tricks of memory, plus sentiment for a game whose time has passed? He wonders, marvels even, vaguely at the sudden, not fear, more like dread. Then, the one small step, and his feet slide habitually into those familiar trenches dug from hundreds of batters over the past three months. Rodrigo rubs the ball in his jersey, slowly winds up, throws the ball. Buck doesn't think he reacts. He hears the sound before he feels the connection of the ball and the bat. He watches the ball disappear over the fence, no doubt that its home run. As he begins the traditional home run trot for the last time, Buck Bocai imagines he hears the organist play his final ever exhortation to come out to the park for a ball game. And the cheers of 300, maybe 301, sound like tens of thousands filling Yankee Stadium the way the great park should be filled. Professional baseball ends with a whimper, not a bang. The first two Yankees in the bottom of the 11th go down on strikeouts, swinging at air, swallowed by the enormity of it all. Finally, when the weak-hitting Mike Chase approaches the batter's box, he stops cold, adjusts his batting glove, his helmet, once, twice, three times, for reasons he can't verbalize. Baseball is a game of moments, and this was to be its last. Leonard served up a fastball straight down the middle, daring Chase to hit it, and Chase connects but barely tops the ball, which digs a neat straight line into the glove of shortstop Eddie Newsom Jr. Newsom's throw is uncharacteristically shaky and slightly off mark, but Buck Bokai stretches to his right, and the ball smacks Mitt. Chase is out, and it is over. Baseball is a game of numbers, and for anyone who cares forevermore, the score line of the last World Series game reads, London Kings 4. New York Yankees won, 11 innings. There is no raucous celebration, no champagne, no post-game interviews. Many of the fans wander onto the field, but they appear as dazed and uncertain as the players, most of whom simply stand or sit in place. The sun is setting on Yankee Stadium. Buck Bokai, not knowing what else to do, goes to Mike Chase, still standing there behind first base, staring beyond that right field wall. He shakes the Yankees' hand. Good game, Mike Chase says. Yes, says Buck Bokai, It was. Computer and program. Been the Truly the Goat Sports History Podcast, an inclusive medium production. Visit us online at trulythegoats.com and on Facebook and Twitter at Truly the Goats. Music used in this episode includes Street Life by Lobo Loco, available at freemusicarchive.org, and Fun on Street by Ulos pakan We also used a sample from Pink Floyd's Money, which we hope is not an actionable offense. Our theme song is Fun on Street, Greatest Remix of All Time, and is produced by David Liso of Dynamo Stairs. I'd like to thank everyone who listened to Volume 1 of Truly the Goats. And just because we're sort of arbitrarily starting a new season of the show, we're not taking any long breaks or anything. In fact, we're planning on instituting a regular schedule for dropping new episodes. As I'm sure you've experienced, the pandemic isn't making production easy. But we're going to get back on track very soon. Next time on Truly the Goats, a musical trip. This is Oz Davis for Truly the Goats and Inclusive Media. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy out there. Kapra!
1: There, sports history fan, this is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I hope that you enjoyed this recent episode presented by the Sports History Network, and were able to learn some good old-fashioned sports history knowledge nuggets. I started the Sports History Network back in 2020 with the mission to help podcasters find a community of like-minded sports history nerds, as well as helping aspiring podcasters to start their own shows. We have a little bit over 30 shows on the network right now covering all sorts of sports history. But as far as I'm concerned, we're just at the toothpick in the ocean moment, you know, that can't even figure it out because there's so much more coming. We wanted to create the ultimate headquarters for sports year, starting with Podcast Network and our website. But we're going to continue to move into other mediums as well. And here's the cool part, because we want you to be part of our team. So if you're interested in starting your own podcast or maybe being a guest on one of our shows, Or who knows, maybe even write an article for us over on the website. Seriously, all you got to do is reach out to us on the contact page over at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. You can be as technologically savvy as a Neanderthal tapping on a stone trying to figure out this whole hieroglyphics thing back in the day. Again, it doesn't matter. Because even if you don't understand the whole podcast space, we have a production team that can pretty much help you out with doing everything. All you got to do, head over to SportsHistoryNetwork.com, head to the contact page fill it out that message goes right to me and i'll reach out to you as soon as i can but for now dude i'm through if you're
0: through